Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast where we dig into God's Word together and find life through Jesus Christ. My name is Ben Blakey. It's Monday, the 30th of November, 2020. What's the problem with repetition? We mentioned this a little bit on Saturdays. We were starting to look at Psalm 136, and we talked about how sometimes even in churches, there are songs that can be more repetitive, saying the same thing many times, and sometimes you might find that hard. Why is that? Well, if you think about it, you realize when you sing something and you're thinking about it, um, that can be powerful. That, that's why we sing lyrics in worship songs, because we want to think about what it is that we are singing, and really the lyrics should be the, the primary thing even driving our emotions and our response to what the lyrics are. Now, certainly the music can be helpful in that, but the music is there to serve the lyrics. And we want to be thinking about the lyrics, thinking about what they mean. And that should, if we're singing good songs, be used by God to stir up our hearts to praise and worship his name. But if you've sung a song where, okay, we're we're singing this over and over, you might find it's hard to stay engaged mentally, right? You've thought about the line once, but now that you're singing it for the sixth time, what is there new to think about? And sometimes that can be a challenge, even just practically. Uh, To get people to repeat the same thing uh, can be a challenging thing. And that takes me back to some days when I would serve with my brother in the college ministry at a church where we were both pastors at the time. And we had a tradition. Every New Year's Eve, we would have a party with the college group, and we would write on the downbeat of midnight starting a new year, we would kick it off with a worship song. Well, before we would get to that point at midnight, we would do some other things to reflect on the year that had happened. And one thing is we would, everybody would get, you know, their little plastic uh, uh, glasses and we would give everybody some Martinelli, some sparkling cider, and we would have some toasts to what God had done throughout that past year. And my brother would open up to Psalm 136. This was kind of a tradition that we had. And he would start reading the Psalm and he would well, he would read the first part of the verse and then the whole group, we would all respond loudly for his steadfast love endures forever. And so you can imagine the scene, somebody up front reading Psalm 136, which is 26 verses long. And you know, this is a New Year's Eve party. So verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. You know, the crowd for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. But by the time we get to verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, the fervor on the for his steadfast love endures forever, it wasn't quite the same. It would diminish a little bit as people were repeating the same thing over and over. And that's where we pick it up today in our reading here in Revival from the Bible as we look at verses 10 through 22 today. Um, And we get to this passage and we're repeating this same line, for his steadfast love endures forever. But now it gets in, not only is it repetitive, we're, we're on the 10th time, the subject matter gets a little interesting. I mean, literally verse 10 starts with talking about how God struck down, in other words, killed the firstborn of Egypt. 
Is that something that makes you feel like springing from your seat and saying, for his steadfast love endures forever? Uh, Maybe not. And really, we get into a section today in verses 10 through 22 that is really focused on the history of Israel. Uh, And each one of these things had meaning for them. And so I want to challenge you in two ways as we read through this today. Number one, do these things that are mentioned in verses 10 through 22 mean anything to you? They should. You might not be a Jewish person. Uh, The history of Israel might not be your national heritage. But the Bible makes clear everything that happened in the Old Testament was also meant for us, for our encouragement, for our understanding as examples for us. These are things that should be near and dear to our hearts. Really, these first several things are about the Exodus. And that's a very common theme in the Old Testament. When they're called to remember the great things that God had done, they often would would reference the Exodus and the things surrounding it. And so that's what's going on when it talks about the striking down the firstborn and bringing Israel out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, dividing the Red Sea, all of these things should have been cherished parts of the history of Israel. In other words, they're cherished parts of biblical history. Do you care about biblical history? Do you understand when you read the Old Testament, when you're reading about God parting the Red Sea, there's something for you to learn there. There's something for you to be encouraged by because that same God that parted the Red Sea is the same God that you're trusting in. Uh, when When you're reading the words in this passage about Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, do you even know who those are? Have you ever read those stories in the Old Testament? One way we should be challenged by this psalm is we should know and cherish biblical history just like the Israelites did. The other way I want to challenge you reminds me of something that my brother would do on those nights um, as we would go through this psalm and read it together. At at some point, uh, especially, you know, when things would start to lag a little bit as we were repeating things, he would kind of switch it up. And here it gets into biblical history. And every year this was on New Year's Eve, we'd be reflecting on things that God had done that year. He would start sprinkling in some of those things. And we would respond by saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. And um, and that was kind of meaningful to us because he would start talking about things that God had done in our midst in that most recent year. And that's the other way I want to challenge you today in response to Psalm 136. I want you to take some time to reflect on not just biblical history, but secondly, your own personal history. I want you to just think through, you know, if somebody was writing this song about your life, what would be some of the things, right? You weren't there at the parting of the Red Sea. You weren't there when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt. You weren't there with Sihon and Og, these ancient kings. But what has God done for you? And I want to challenge you to think about it. And I even would, if you've got time, encourage you to write some of these things down. And after each thing that you write down, I would encourage you to also write down, for his steadfast love endures forever. Yes, that line may be repetitive in this psalm, but what makes it meaningful, I think, is the repetition, but also every verse has something new right before that. 
So I want you to consider what are some of the things in your life that you would put down if this psalm were about what God has done for you. And after each one of those things, I want you to think for his steadfast love endures forever. And remember when we would go through this with my brother, as he would start to sprinkle in those things, people who had been kind of waning in their fervor and enthusiasm would start getting excited again. And it would build to a crescendo in the end of the passage where we will see tomorrow in our reading as we wrap up Psalm 136. Well, now let's turn our attention to our other Old Testament passage for today, Ezekiel 42 and 43. Now, yesterday we got into some eschatology and discovering and discussing uh, just the future and what the Bible teaches about that. And there are various views. And I kind of shared some of my own personal perspective and the way I understand uh, what the Bible is teaching, to teach that there is going to be a future day when Christ is the king. He's reigning on this earth that we call the millennium. And one of the reasons I hold to that view of premillennialism is some of the things that we come across here in the latter chapters of Ezekiel. And I think what we're reading about here in chapters 42 and 43 is a real literal temple that is going to be built someday in the future. And a chapter like chapter 42 might not be the most exciting read to you as there's a lot of details. It looks like you're feels like you're looking at blueprints, which unless you're an architect might not get you the most excited. But if you notice kind of even the way it's presented, the way it's measured, it sure seems to me like this is a literal place, a real place that is going to be built. And and chapter 43 is a very important moment in the book of Ezekiel. If you remember earlier when Isaiah is transported in the spirit, remember he's in Babylon, but he gets transported in the spirit to Jerusalem. And as he is there, he sees this vision of the glory departing from the temple. And that's a, a theme that we've seen in a couple places. In the very first chapter, there's this vision. It's kind of hard to understand. There's these wheels. Um, but it seems that what he is seeing is kind of the base of the throne of God, like this mobile throne that's built on wheels that travels around the world. And he, he sees it there in Babylon. But it, later, he sees, the, again, this throne, and it's leaving the temple. The glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. But what we see here in chapter 43 is a vision of the glory of the Lord returning and filling this temple. And that also reminds us now of one of the themes we've kind of pivoted in Ezekiel from talking about judgment that is going to come on Jerusalem. Now that this last part of the book is really focused on a future restoration. And we see that powerfully presented in chapter 43 in this uh this glory of the Lord now returning to the temple. Now, we also have to think a little bit about eschatology now as we are reading the book of Revelation. And today we look at Revelation chapter six. Uh, And again, this is, you know, your periodic reminder that it is not the book of Revelations, plural. It is the book of Revelation. And we're looking at chapter six today, which describes the seven seals. And now if you remember chapter five, the lamb is presented with this scroll and it is sealed with seven seals. And the lamb, the lion and the lamb, Jesus Christ, he's the only one that's found worthy to take the scroll and to open it and to break the seals. But now in chapter six, we see as each one of these seals is broken, 
there is something that happens. And there's different teachings, again, of how this is understood. I think it's best to understand this as referring to something that is going to happen in the future. That, yes, it's describing something that's going on in heaven, but there will be real things that happen on the earth as a result. And we see these generally are things, uh, events of judgment. Uh, For instance, we see the fourth seal. And we see this pale horse, right? We see the four horsemen of the apocalypse here. This is the fourth one. And it talks about um, authority being given to this horse and its riders, death and Hades, authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, if we stop and think about that, uh, something like that would be incredibly catastrophic. A quarter of the earth would be close to 2 billion people. But I think what we see here is a a picture of a time where there might be some peace. And uh, a lot of people understand uh, this initial horseman to be somehow connected to the Antichrist. And this figure that will come and uh, bring peace to the world. Uh, But what we see is that peace is going to be short-lived. And then there will be war, there will be famine, and there will be just destruction and chaos during this time that we refer to as the tribulation. And then you see in the the sixth seal, something that I want to make sure we don't kind of get lost. Uh, One thing I think we, a lot of people from all different perspectives can struggle with in eschatology is anytime we read anything about eschatology, we want to get caught up in the details and trying to figure it all out. Instead of missing some of the big messages that should be there, this sixth seal is an intense um, scene of intense destruction and wrath, and it describes kings in verse 15, great ones and generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free. It describes them as hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. One thing that we should see from this passage clearly, no matter what your perspective on eschatology might be, one thing that every Christian should agree on is the wrath of God is something to be feared. And if your faith is not in Christ, if you have not put your trust in the Lamb, then it doesn't matter who you are. You could be one of the richest, most powerful men or women in the world, but none of that is going to save you on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And that's one of the reasons why we want to preach the gospel now. And we want to believe the gospel now. We want to trust in the lamb and be saved, be spared from the wrath of God. And so that's something I think we should get out of this passage in Revelation 6 to say today is that very powerful reminder and picture of the wrath of God. Now, finally, today we look at John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. And we see here Jesus praying to the Father. He's interacting with these Greeks and he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now, we see clearly here and in other places, 
there is an element of which Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. He was not relishing the suffering that he was about to experience. But there is a resolve to endure the shame, uh, to bear the cross. And he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And God answers here that he will glorify his name. But we see Jesus, he had a commitment, not to his own comfort, not to his own desires, but to the glory of his father. And now we know that the father has exalted Christ, right? And Jesus even says, when he is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all peoples to himself. So really, I think as we end, we have a a set of alternatives what are you headed towards? Are you living a life that is committed to the glory of God, even at the expense of your own desires? Or are you living a life that is headed towards the wrath of the Lamb? May that be a reminder of all of us today about the wonder of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, we can be saved from judgment, saved from the wrath of God, and we can be reconciled to God, to living for his glory. And that is something for which we should all say thank you to God. That's something, this good news of the gospel is a reason why we should all say, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.